Ron and Trudy, I uh, really appreciate your leading us in worship. I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Might be a good place to start. We'll be tackling quite a bit of the book of Acts this morning. Let me give you just a, a real brief kind of plan of where we're going. Uh, we've spent the last few weeks thinking about the gospel. My intention is to wrap that up this morning um, thinking about what is the, the message that we are to bring to the world? What is the gospel message that we have been entrusted to us? And what do we bring to the world that needs the gospel? And then, uh, Lord willing, I want to jump into a, a series in Hosea. Uh, that's the plan. Go through that Old Testament prophet. If you haven't read Hosea ever or in a long time, uh, crack open your Bible and read Hosea at some point in the next couple of weeks and get familiar with it. I also want to spend maybe a, a week or two before we jump into Hosea proper just thinking about the value, the importance, the necessity of the Old Testament, and why we would consider that to be part of our Christian scriptures. And so we'll, Lord willing, go through those kind of topics in that book in the coming weeks. But for now, I want us to focus on the gospel. We need to be experts on the gospel. I don't know if you've ever met one of those people with kind of a freakish mind that can just remember statistics. Um, usually they're applied to unimportant things like batting averages and the Super Bowl win from 1981 and who was the MVP from that. Uh, met those kind of people and they can just rattle off statistics year after year, date after date, name after name, and it's impressive. They can just have it at the tip of their tongue. And when I say that I want us to be gospel experts, I mean not that we have the statistics of the gospel, but we have the gospel so in our hearts that we can rattle off in our sleep if need be. We can tell people what the gospel is when they need to hear it. We can tell it backwards and forwards. We can tell it in the morning and at night. We can tell it inside and out. We can tell it to a Hindu as well as to a Muslim as well as to an atheist as well as to agnostics. We can tell the gospel to whoever needs to hear it. In one sense, this is easy, because the gospel is simple. And that's really what I want to emphasize to you. The scripture, as it presents the gospel to us, is not a complex message. It's really, at its core, simple, and I don't want to overcomplicate it. And I hope that you're able to wrap your arms around this simple message and let this be the message of your life. You think about it, you dwell about it, you live it out. The core message is a simple one. The thing that intimidates us is when we go to people who have objections to that message, and they raise up objections. It's almost like we've got to peel away the layers, the husk, before we can get to the gospel message, and that's what intimidates us. But I want to convey to you that if you know the core of the gospel, you know its truth, you don't really have to be too concerned about the husk layers. If you know the core gospel and you can present that, You have been a faithful steward with the gospel. I wouldn't minimize becoming familiar with how to tear away the husks that get in the way of the gospel, but at its core, know the simple message. If you know that, you can be on fire for Christ, and God can use you in a profound way. So there's a few things I want you to know this morning. I'm going to do just a couple of introductory thoughts, and then we're going to spend most of our time working through Acts and the gospel message that presented in Acts. But I want you to know, first of all, that there is only one gospel. 
There's only one saving message that has been given from heaven to mankind that will save us from hell. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 declares there is salvation in no one else for there, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's pretty exclusive and we've talked about that in the past weeks. But there's another way to look at this, and Paul talks about it in Romans 1, verse 1. As he gives this introductory statement, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God at least means that it is God's gospel. It is God's message. It is sourced and originated and coming from him, and therefore there is no reason that we can take that message that finds its origin and source in God and manipulate it into any kind of message that we want it to be. There's only one gospel, and that is the gospel of God. It is God's gospel, and so we leave it as he has given it to us. We don't want to defile it, corrupt it in any way. We want to take it pure and give it away pure. There are not multiple ways of salvation. There's only one way. There are not multiple messages. There's only one message. There are not multiple saviors. There's only one savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our message. Now, there are various people coming from various backgrounds who need to hear this one message. And at times, they need it clarified for them. This one message may need to be brought in a particular way to a Muslim to explain what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. They need to understand that in a clear way and get rid of all the lies surrounding that idea. And so we might focus on that with a Muslim. With a Hindu and a Buddhist, we may need to focus on the reality of this world and the reality of sin with them. Or with a Jehovah's Witness, we might need to unpack the Trinity for them. Or with agnostics, we need to deal with certainty. Or with atheists, we just need to present the truth and reality of God. But in all, they all need this one saving message of the gospel. That's what you need to be an expert on. And in the end, all of those different groups, when you confront them with the truth of the gospel, as we're going to see in the book of Acts, it will bring out all of those other issues. And you will have opportunity to deal with it from the lens of the gospel. The, God, the Apostle Paul preached the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, to monotheists and polytheists. He preached to idolaters, to self-righteous, to the licentious, and for all of them, it's the same gospel. Because we have one gospel, I want to encourage you to have confidence in the power of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You really need to look no further for the power of the gospel than this very room. You have people from a wide variety of walks of life, different geographic locations, different backgrounds, different cultures, and yet it's the same gospel that saved us all. We all had our various pet sins. We had the different things we struggled with, the different forms of unbelief in our life, but it was the same gospel that saved all of us. It wasn't a different gospel for each one. It was the same gospel. You see, the power of salvation work across culture, across time. The same gospel message that was preached in first century Israel is the same gospel message preached in 21st century the United States of America. The same gospel message preached right now in the underground church of China or Iran is the same gospel that's preached in the wide open church of the United States, wherever it's preached faithfully, that is. It's the same gospel. 
And true salvation will only come and will only ever come through this message. And so we need to have confidence in the power of this gospel, for there's no other gospel that will save. And it's saved thousands, millions, and Revelation says numerous, uncountable numbers of people. And it's the only thing that saves. And it's the only message that saved you. And so you of all people in the world who have been saved by the gospel should know its power because it saved you. So what is this message? What do we proclaim? What is the the meat and potatoes of the gospel message? Well, let's look at that through the book of Acts. I want to do a survey of the book of Acts. It's an amazing book because really this chronicles the birth of the church for about 30 years after the life, uh, the, the resurrection of Christ. So what this gives us is a book that shows the gospel is spread from Jerusalem to Rome over the course of 30 years. And the same message preached in Jerusalem is the same message that's preached in Rome, and it's the same message that saves, saves Jewish people, the same message that saves Gentile people. So I want to do a survey of what this message is that had such a profound influence in the first century world and continues to have its influence. What you are going to find at the end of this survey is just a few things. Here's the way we can summarize it. And this is, uh, I'm helped out from a book called 30 Years That Changed the World by Michael Green, and he summarizes it this way. The aim of the preaching was that the preachers in Acts wanted to win people from every background to the exclusive allegiance of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? The goal of everyone who's preaching in the book of Acts is to win people to exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's what they're all after. The essential doctrine that is preached as the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. That's the basic message. The whole concentration of the message is on the person of Jesus. It will emphasize that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of the Old Testament. He is not an arbitrary figure that just pops out of nowhere in history, just all of a sudden comes out and nobody's ever expected or heard of somebody like this coming before. It is the expectation of the Old Testament. They concentrate on the fact that Jesus is a man, that he is Jesus of Nazareth, born into historical reality, who lived a real life. They emphasize that Jesus is God when they, they tout him as Jesus is Lord. It's synonymous. They will propose that Christ crucified is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. They will propose that Christ crucified is, happened because sinful men put him there. They will teach that Christ is crucified as the servant who would die in our place. They will teach Christ is risen, Christ is reigning. And so the whole message of the gospel just is glued to Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. The message of Christ really culminates in the offer of a gift, and the offer of the gift is the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then, as I already mentioned, as the preachers in Acts preach, they expect a response. They challenged their hearers to accept the gift offered to them and challenged them to begin following Jesus. And so if you were to kind of bring a synopsis of the message, you are presenting to the world as you proclaim Christ that Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ is crucified, 
Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is reigning. And people need to receive him as Lord for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we present to people. They need to follow him. And so, I want to spend the next however long going through 28 passages in Acts. And we'll cut it down if you're good. But we'll fly through some of these. So get your Bible out. If you haven't already, turn with me to the book of Acts. And we're going to fly through this so that you don't just see this as my words or somebody else's words, but you see this as the words of Scripture. This is the message of the gospel that was preached. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see the emphasis there, the emphasis on the life of Christ, a man attested by God with mighty works. He's proposing to the people, Jesus lived a real life, observable, real historic life. The gospel is not anti-history, it is not anti-reality. In fact, it is rooted in history, it is rooted in reality. It is not essentially mystical. And it's essential to know that there are certain events that happened, that Jesus Christ lived Jesus Christ died, and Jesus Christ rose. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Peter concludes the message with this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And you see there, one of the goals of him preaching is for the people to know something for certain. The thing he wants them to know is that God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. Lord of all. The Christ foretold in the scriptures. To pe- for people to know Christ is in charge. That's the conclusion of the gospel. Not just to know it, but to believe it, to follow it. And so Peter calls them to be repent and be baptized. Everyone in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 3, verse 18, we find Peter preaching again. And he says in 3, 18 and 19, But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Again, he emphasizes the life of Jesus of Nazareth, particularly in his sufferings, and that it was foretold by Scripture. In other words, this is a plan that God has had for as long as there's been Scripture at least. And the response demanded from the reality that Jesus Christ is the Christ who is foretold by the Scriptures, the response demanded is repent. Turn from your sins. Why? Because he is Christ. And what's the result? That your sins may be blotted out. The response demanded is repentance for the forgiveness of your sins blotting out of your sins, by taking a ledger of all of your sins and every last one of them blotted out from that ledger so that it's no longer 
readable. It's no longer there. Forgiveness, because Christ is Lord and offers forgiveness. Acts chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Again, Peter preaching declares, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The gospel is exclusive. It's exclusive in the fact that Christ is the only cornerstone. And one of the ways we know he's the only cornerstone is because he is the one who is rejected. His crucifixion proves that he is the Christ because the Old Testament foretells that the Messiah would be rejected and would be crucified. And Christ is the only foundation for God's work of salvation. That's what it means that he is the cornerstone. He must be known. This is Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth. He's not a nameless Savior. He's known. He's real. He's objective. So as you present the gospel to people, you need to name him. You need to name Christ, the only one who can forgive sins. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. And 31. Again, Peter and the apostles preaching The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. See again that the gospel is consistent with the Old Testament because it's the God of the fathers of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The gospel is consistent with what has been revealed in the Old Testament The gospel is the fulfillment of scriptures. The gospel is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. If he has not been raised, then we have no hope. And Jesus Christ is raised and is at the right hand of God the Father, and he is there as leader and savior. So again, we proclaim Christ as Lord. Acts 8, chapter verse 5. Now Philip preaches. He goes to Samaria. Acts 8.5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And here we see the gospel begins to spread out. It's not just for Jews. It's for Samaritans. Almost the nemesis of the Jews. People who would not get along at all now share the same Christ. What does he preach? Well, he proclaimed to them the Christ. It's as simple as that. The Christ is the one foretold in the Old Testament who would rule and reign. Acts chapter 5, or sorry, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It's not just that there is a Christ, but who that Christ is, and that Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. Chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. What did he preach? He preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. You see the essence of his gospel message there again. Acts 8, chapter 8, verse 35. Paul, or Philip now preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. 
opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Here he's preaching to an Ethiopian who has Isaiah on his lap, and he's reading about how there's this figure in the Old Testament who is like a sheep led before the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth, and this figure faces humiliation, faces injustice. And the Ethiopian asks, who's he speaking of? And that's just like a softball lobbed to Philip, and he hits it out of the park. Speaking about Christ. Christ who suffered, Christ who died, Christ who rose, Christ is Lord. He tells them, tells him the gospel message. Acts 9, verse 20. Here's the first preaching of the Apostle Paul after he gets converted. Acts 9, verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Right after Paul is saved, he goes out preaching. What does he preach? He preaches Christ. He preaches who Jesus is. Say that Jesus is the Son of God is to declare him equal to be God, to be sent of God, to belong to God. Jesus gets in big trouble when he calls God his Father because the people understood that he was making himself equal with God. So declare Jesus as the Son of God is another way of saying that he is Lord, he's equal with the Father. Acts 9, verse 22, Saul continues to preach and increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Gospel message is not anti-intellectual. It is not anti-reason at all. It involves reasoning. And he reasons with the Jews there, proving that Jesus is the Christ. We should not be ashamed of having reasons for why we believe what we believe and being able to show that Jesus is the Christ. Well, how do we show that? He rose from the dead. How do you show that? The tomb is empty. How do you show that? We've got multiple witnesses of the empty tomb. We could go on with more and more reasons. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. This is Peter preaching to Cornelius, a Gentile centurion. And here's what he preaches in Acts 10, verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. What is the gospel? It's good news. Good news about what? Good news about peace, reconciliation with God. Through who? Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? Lord of all. Lord of all. We need to proclaim Christ as Lord of all. We are not calling people through the gospel to have individual kingdoms where they just get to continue to do whatever they want regardless of anyone else in the world. No, we're calling people to the reality that there is a Lord on high under whom they must live. And that is Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified and rose again. And the only reason you can live under his rule and reign without being squashed is because he offers forgiveness to those who believe in him. And he purchased that forgiveness at the cross. The very next verse, Acts 10, verse 43 I'm sorry, Acts 10.42 is where we're at. Not the next verse. Acts 10.42. 
Peter's still preaching to Cornelius, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And then verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You hear them pounding the same drum over and over and over again. Jesus is the judge of the living and dead appointed by God. Anyone who believes receives forgiveness. If you don't receive forgiveness, what will you face? You'll face the judge. Acts 13, verse 23. Here's Paul preaching. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Remember, this is all the plan and working of God. God brought him. God sent him. And who is it? Jesus. And what is Jesus? Savior. Acts 13, 38, 39. Again, Paul still preaching. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Paul brings in here not just the reality of Christ, not just the reality of forgiveness, but the reality of the law. And the reality of the law is that anyone who tries to live by it only finds condemnation there. And that should be the reality for every human being that whatever law we are trying to live by, even if it be our own law, we do not live up to that standard. And so everyone is guilty, whether by God's law or even by our own standard, we don't even live up to that. So everyone stands guilty, and much more so when we bring God's law to bear on the lives of people. The law is not given for us to think about how good we are. David Wells writes, The law was not given to show us that we can live in accord with its requirements. Just the reverse. The law lays bare our inner failures, exposes our corrupt motives, reveals in us our persistent drive to replace God and his truth with ourselves and our interests. That is what the law is designed to do. The well-known Californian minister who preached a series of sermons on the Ten Commandments subtitled How to Feel Good About Yourself surely missed something quite basic about how the law works and what it does. Anyone who knows the law should know their own guilt, and anyone who knows their own guilt knows they can't free themselves from that guilt, and that's why Christ came. That's why we need forgiveness of sins. The gospel, again, is a call to belief. That's what Paul is doing. Everyone who believes is freed from that which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Acts 14, verse 15. Again, Paul preaching, this time to idolaters, to Gentiles who don't have a familiarity with the Old Testament. Acts 14, 15 Paul says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He calls them to repentance. 
He alerts them to the reality of God. He moves them to understand that they've been serving vain things. And so we see again here that the gospel call, good news, includes a call for people to repent, to turn. Usually we don't equate repentance with good news. Because repentance means that you have to stop living the way that you've lived, and we usually like living the way that we lived. But here it's described as good news. We bring you good news that you should turn. Why is it good news? Because we are inviting people to turn from vanity, from vain things. It is like telling people, somebody who is trying to chop down a tree, a great big giant oak, trying to chop it down with a spoon, and you say, hey, use this chainsaw instead. That's not bad news. That's good news because they're never getting that oak down with a spoon. And so we invite people to the real saving gospel, and repentance is not bad news. It's good news. Turn from vanity to the living God. Acts 16, verse 31. This is that famous verse where the Philippian jailer is ready to take his life because he thinks all of his inmates have escaped. And he says to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then Acts 16, 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. See the encapsulation of the gospel there. Jesus is the one that saves. Who is Jesus? He is Lord. What must we do with him? Believe in him. There's the gospel. And what's the result? Salvation, forgiveness, your life spared from eternal damnation. Acts 17, 2, and 3. Again, Paul preaching. He goes into a synagogue, and and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's reasoning, using the Scriptures, proving, showing, demonstrating that the Christ is Jesus that the Christ must suffer, that the Christ must rise from the dead. Acts 17, verse 30 and 31. Paul now preaching to Gentiles, to idolaters. And he declares, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this... He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He tells them about God's coming judgment. He tells them about Christ, about the resurrection. He tells them about justice and judgment. Acts 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. What was he doing? Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was was Jesus. That's what we're trying to prove to people. Acts 18, verse 28. This time Apollos preaching. Acts 18, 28. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Acts 20 and 21. 
Paul speaking to the Ephesians elders, reminding them what he did, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 23, verse 11. Paul receiving encouragement from the Lord while he's in prison. Acts 23, 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, that's the Lord Jesus. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. There you hear from the Lord Jesus Christ the expectation of Paul and what he will do. He'll be one who testifies to the facts about Jesus Christ. Acts 24, verses 24 and 25. Paul, still in prison and on trial, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and, he, and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he, as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. What's Paul talking about still? Well, he's talking about Repentance. He's talking about judgment. He's speaking with somebody who doesn't know Christ, who needs to know Christ. Acts 25, no, excuse me, 26, verses 16 to 18. Paul describing how the Lord called him to serve as an apostle. Acts 26, verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." Verse 26 of the same chapter. For the, kings know, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, Paul speaking to Agrippa, Herod. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You hear the heart of Paul, the same message, wanting even the person he's on trial before to come to Christ. Acts 28, verse 23, almost there. Acts 28, verse 23. Paul, now in Rome... When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him, this is the local Jews, at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. And then the very last verse of the book of Acts. Paul's still imprisoned. Paul's still in Rome. And what is he doing Acts 28, verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance.
So it's the gospel message. Jesus is Lord. Crucified, risen, and reigning. And for those who believe in him, those who repent from their sins, their sins are forgiven. It's the core of the message. That's what we hold out to people. That will require a lifetime pondering, thinking, worshiping Christ because of what he's done for you. The message is simple enough for a three-year-old to understand. And it's been given to us to not muck with it, but to give it to the world. It's the gospel message. It's been working since the days of Acts, and I suggest we don't mess with it. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you've left us such a clear testimony as to what the gospel is. We thank you that Jesus Christ died for sins and rose and is reigning. We thank you that he is Lord. We believe this, Father. If there's anyone who doesn't, oh God, may you bring them to faith and repentance even today, that they might be forgiven of their sins and live with Christ as Lord. What a great message. What good news. And it's all from you, and we praise you for it, Lord. May we be a people faithful with it. Pray that we would not mess with it. We would hold on to it. We'd hold on to it tightly. Oh God, keep us faithful. Keep us in your word. Keep us sharpened by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.